My name is Nick Fennick Clannell, uh, Footprint Media Group. Uh, welcome to the Public Health Responsibility Conference. Um, just a little bit of background. Uh, in 2011, the government launched the Public Health Responsibility Deal to tap into the potential for businesses and other influential organizations to make a significant contribution to improving public health. The industry bought into this, but then in late 2014, government messages began to go a little quiet, and by the end of the following year, the patient was declared dead. So having spent quite a lot of time and not a little money in supporting this, many organizations and those involved felt pretty let down by its demise. Many are in the, <coughs> excuse me, many are in the room this afternoon. The PHRD's replacement, the Childhood Obesity Strategy, is a work in progress. The statistics do not lie, and with obesity rates having doubled since 1990, almost two-thirds of, of UK adults are now regarded as overweight and obese. There was also a disturbing story in the uh, newspapers yesterday, which revealed that children as young as 10 are now re re receiving hip replacements, so, which fairly goes to identify the fairly catastrophic state of affairs. The uh, out-of-home sector has been categorised by factions of the food industry as contributing little to the obesity agenda, a characterisation that ignores a lot of the good work that is taking place. The Public Health Responsibility Conference is intended as a new platform where industry, NGOs, media and government can come together to amplify and accelerate the good work that the food service sector is already doing to improve public health. This is not just about obesity, but about all aspects of pub public health where food service has a stakeholding. We have an excellent array of speakers and panelists for you this afternoon, and there'll be plenty of opportunities to ask questions throughout, so please don't hold back. Uh, if you'd like to tweet during the sessions, there is a hashtag up at the top there, hashtag PHRC, and I'd be appreciated if you'd use that with it. So to outline the plans and to guide you through the rest of the afternoon, let me hand you over to Amy. Hello. So, um, so I'm going to talk to you today about the Public Health Responsibility um, Conference and what our goal is, because I'm sure many of you have been to our, our normal forums, but today isn't just a normal footprint forum. Um, we're really um, about, we're going to put together this five-year road, uh, roadmap for food service and make some really um, binding and important commitments. So the idea is not just to talk today about the issues and come away inspired. We want to do that, but we also want to come away and really have some debate going about <laughs> what could be workable targets. What could food service sign up to that could really actually help the sector make a difference? So... Um, the session that with me is we're going to go through, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to really try and think about what kind of targets and commitments we could pin down for food service. Um, and this is going to sort of clearly indicate action to PHE and the Department of Health about finding, but we've also got to look at ways of increasing the communication with these agencies to help make these plans um, you know, more effective, because that's been one of the problems. Because the idea is to sort of, if, if we can get food service to sign up to some commitments, that can really help to level the playing field and make sure that everyone's working towards the same goal and no one's being penalised for actually doing the right thing and the thing that's helping to make people healthier. 
Um, so it's not going to be, this sec- section is not going to be about me talking. It's going to be me putting together some ideas, but I want everyone to really, you know, stick your hand up. Say if you think that's a good idea, bad idea, this is actually a good target, this is a barrier, this is a challenge. And what we want to do is to really try and, and get all of these ideas pinned down. Because the next point part of this process is that in June is going to be the, the big public health responsibility conference. This is just the sort of little pre-taster. And that's when food service is going to sign up to these commitments. So we need to get 10 people to come forward and or around 10 people to be on the committee to sort of... Uh, fine-tune and hone down these ideas and really put together some meaningful targets. So, you all need to put your thinking caps on and get involved. And uh, I'm going to be kind of calling on people to, to give me some feedback as we go along. So, first of all, as Nick said, you know, why do we need to do this? Because uh, we're eating ourselves well to ill health. We are totally incapable of exercising willpower as a nation, it appears. Um, with 63% of the UK adult population overweight or obese. Um, as Nick mentioned, there's also a quarter of 2 to 10-year-olds and a third of 11 to 15-year-olds. And, you know, lifestyle diseases are now the biggest threat to human health. And it's just, uh, it's such a shame. It doesn't really need to be this way. Um, <coughs> excuse me. 80% of adults and 95% of children eat too little veg. And... Um, <clears throat> we need 12 million portions more consumed in the out-of-home sector. <clears throat> so that's food service. That's food service, what we need to be doing. And amazingly, you know, just losing a small amount of difference can make a really big impact on people's health. So any changes that we can help people make while still providing them with delicious and tasty and interesting food is going to make a real impact on their health. And with, you know, one in six meals and a quarter of calories consumed outside the home, it's food services, responsibility, but also a massive, massive opportunity. As all of you are well aware, you know, um, oops, I've gone too far. There is so much research out there, you know, health and wellness is still continues to be a major trend and there's tons of zillions of stats out there. But the one that sprang to mind was this one from a Nestle professional, which 56% of casual diners would be more willing to go to a restaurant offering healthy menu options. But there's there's loads more stats like that. In fact, um, some Euromonitor research recently identified sort of ethical living, which encompasses a lot of the healthy living perspectives, is one of the eight mega trends, you know, impacting consumer behaviour between now and 2030. So, you know, it's a real opportunity for food service too. Okay, so food service is doing lots of really good things. As Nick touched upon, there's lots of menu reformulation going on, lots of, uh, you know, really good pockets of good practice. But what we need to do um, is we need to try and make this more industry-wide and help everybody who's feeling unsure of what to do, but also, you know, make sure that everyone moves forward so we all learn from that best practice by signing up to this um, five-year roadmap. So now we've come up with uh, nine topics. So we're not saying these are necessarily the right ones, Um, you know, but we also want to go through this afternoon what should be included in each one. Now, we also don't want to duplicate other effort because there's some amazing things. I mean, Peas Please is a brilliant uh, thing which has been going on recently. So we don't want to be duplicating other effort. We want to be supporting that effort and helping to drive it forward on a a wider base as well. Um, And as I said, this is going to be food services roadmap. So that's why we also need your input to really say what you think is going to work. All the practical inputs. Now, relax for a minute and listen to the amazingly, wonderfully wise words from... um, 
the Professor Winkler. So, uh, Professor Winkler, if you could come um, to the stage here, or the, have a seat at the front here. Um, <coughs> so, uh, Professor Jack Winkler is an emeritus, emeritus Professor of Nutrition Policy at uh, London Metropolitan University, and he has... Uh, he was previously at the University of Kent, Imperial College and Cranfield University, and he's been associated with most of the prominent food health advocacy groups in the UK since the 1980s. So he has been in the thick of this stuff for literally decades, and for 13 years he also was the chair of the Action and Information on Sugars, which is an association of dental and nutritional professionals. Now he is going to... Um, give us a really um, insightful talk on the contradictions in government policy in relation to sugar and public health. So thank you very much, Professor Winkler. It's been uh, an unexpected pleasure to sit through a whole hour's meeting of people in the industry talking about my subject. I hadn't anticipated it, and it was a pleasure. And I have to say, it wasn't like that when I began. Uh, we can date with unusual precision exactly when nutrition became a public health issue. It happened on the 3rd of July, 1983, which was when uh, a report from the unfortunately named NACNI Committee, Nutritional Advisory Committee on Nutrition Education, was leaked on the front page of the Sunday Times. The government had commissioned this report thought it was going to get a committee advising people with new recipes on healthy, healthy cooking. And instead, what they got was a report that was a critique of the unhealthy British diet. They tried to block it. They made the author of it, Professor Philip James, rewrite it 13 times. When, after the 13th draft, he finally realized that they were never going to let him publish it. He realized he had to leak it. And he leaked it through friends onto the front page of the Sunday Times. Nothing happened. So he leaked it again. This time the whole report to the Lancet. And suddenly, nutrition became not something for pregnant women and young children and sick people it became a public health issue. And we had a flurry of reports and interests and engagement of which this meeting is a very fine example. But in the first stages, when people began to respond to nutrition as an issue, what they proposed was better labeling and nutrition education programs for final consumers, usually read by the led by the government. Um, if you read, as I did in those days, report after report after report written by expert committees on nutrition, there would be hundreds of pages on scientific research and then a slim bit at the end on policy, what to do about it, and the policy recommendations were always the same, better labeling and consumer education. And this was not just in the UK. We've recently had three studies of nutrition policies around the world over the last decades, done by WHO Europe, 50 odd members, OECD, developed countries, 36 members, WHO 
globally, almost 200 countries, and the results came out always the same. Nutrition policy all over the world, whether you were talking about poor countries or rich countries, always came out the same. Better labeling and nutrition education for final consumers, preferably done by the government. For those who are interested in nutrition, it can be transformative, change their lives, their diets. But if we look at this strategy, this strategy of trying to get consumers to change their behavior, to choose healthy foods instead of unhealthy ones, we have to recognize that as a public health issue, it has been a failure, a total failure. <coughs> and the evidence for this is a global obesity epidemic all over the world, in poor countries and rich countries, ever since the last 1980s on, obesity rates all over the world are going up. Worse in poor countries because they have a double burden of malnutrition, not just obesity, but we do. But this has been a common pattern all over the world of a limited nutrition strategy failing and obesity <coughs> rates going up. It's a gradually recently come to a recognition that this strategy is not working. Education is desirable. People have a right to know what good nutrition is, but it clearly is insufficient as a policy for change. Why is this? Part it is that consumer nutrition education messages are drowned out by food advertising. I've done research myself on the numbers, sat in the British Library, did all the calculations in the 1980s, absolutely overwhelming, no ratio worth comparing between advertising and health education budgets. Sue Dibb, who unfortunately can't be here, has done the same. We did a lot in action information on sugars, on sugar advertising. Nutrition education is simply drowned out by food advertising. But there's a second reason, and there's a second reason that people in the nutrition field are most reluctant to admit. And it is that the vast majority of people in this country are not interested in healthy eating. Doesn't mean they're all actually against it. Some people are for it in principle, but they have other priorities in their life. There's the taste of the food, the price of the food, the convenience of the food, the brand loyalties are something they've consumed for a long time, what the spouse and the kids will tolerate. <coughs> In that list of priorities, nutrition, healthy eating often comes relatively low. But then there's another sector of society, and we can't put numbers to this because people don't always give honest answers when you ask them, who actually reject the whole idea of healthy eating. Who the hell are you to tell me what to eat? This is my space, get out of it. They don't treat healthy eating advice as helpful, they treat it as harassment. You're telling me what to eat, get lost. And those are some of the reasons why nutrition policy has been so ineffective for so long. Happily, things are beginning to change, and we can see this. 
we've begun to recognize move beyond education or behavioral strategies toward reformulation as a strategy. Think about it conceptually. We're changing food as well as changing people. We're moving beyond a behavioral change strategy to a structural change strategy. The best example of that is the SALT program. We reduced our national SALT intake in six years through a reformulation program. In my view, that is the most successful nutrition policy in the United Kingdom since the Second World War. That is to say, since we had rationing. For those of you who don't realize it, rationing is extremely good for your health, but it's unpopular politically. Uh, but the SALT program was the second best thing we've had. And now we have, as been mentioned already, the consumer, uh, uh, the childhood obesity plan, which is focused on reducing the sugar content of nine popular sweet food categories, which happily are not just consumed by children, they're consumed by adults as well. The second way we've begun to change is we've begun to take an interest in price. When I had to read all those nutrition reports, there was never a mention of the price of food. Nutritionists weren't interested in the price of food. Everybody else in the food chains calculates the price of food down to quarters of a penny, but nutritionists did never want to know. They never mentioned it. Happily, we've had a change. It pains me to say a good word about George Osborne, but the soft drinks industry levy, the sugary drinks tax, is a great success. And the reason why it's been a great success, two reasons why, unlike Mexico, Fiji, Hungary, France, everything, George Osborne put in a graduated tax, now being copied in France again. So there are levels. Secondly, he took the softest target because Soft drinks are the area where sweeteners are easily workable, and so he was going, it was the easy win, the low-hanging fruit. But uh, if you think of the logic behind what was going on, it's an important one for nutrition strategy. Create a price differential between the healthier and the less healthy options. Give people economic incentives as well as moral injunctions. Don't just wag your finger at it, make it worth their while. In April, when this tax becomes formal, it's going to be declared a great, great success. We know that already, because the vast majority of products, and Julian can talk about this, because he's doing it all the day, is, have been reformulated already, even A.G. Barr, the most recalcitrant of companies I've ever dealt with in 30 years in nutrition policy, is reformulating Iron Brew and Tizer. Coca-Cola is going to have two major brands that are full sugar paying the tax. Mountain Dew and Coca-Cola Red. Hmm? Very few. There are going to be very few products that will be fully taxed on the British market come next April. This is a remarkably effective nutrition policy. 
what it's going to lead to, and you can anticipate it right now, you can write the script for all the health advocacy groups. If it's worked in soft drink, let's apply it elsewhere. Another category, not just soft drinks, biscuits, croissants, whatever. Or, if you believe the Institute of Fiscal Studies on sugar itself. But you're going to have demands for more taxes on bad foods, quote unquote. The third thing that's changed dramatically in recent years is a recognition of the implications of diabetes. What we have following on behind an obesity epidemic is an epidemic in diabetes, which is affecting people, children, very young, as early as seven, eight, nine, down in the West Country study, but increasing proportions of the population becoming diabetic or pre-diabetic, badly measured, inadequate research. Nonetheless, we can see a clear trend and a clear threat. Diabetes is an extremely expensive disease to treat, especially if you're doing it from a young age. You're talking about <coughs> amputations. You're talking about blindness. You're talking about drugs for a lifetime. You're talking about repeat visits to hospitals and GPs. If we had diabetes on epidemic proportions, it would break the bank of any healthcare system in the world, no matter how it's funded. It would be the end of the NHS. That gives some urgency to nutrition policy, and particularly to sugar policy. Diabetes is, gives me cause for black optimism. It's going to make things so bad that we're actually going to have to do something about the problems. This is going to be a squeeze on the food service industry. Already many times mentioned already today, the intra-industry squabble. Manufacturers and the retailers think you're getting off light. Right? But attention is already turning to the out-of-home sector. The next challenge for Public Health England is calorie reduction. And what are the products? Burgers, pizzas, sandwiches, crisps. The four foundation stones of the out-of-home sector. They're after, they're in a different way, not sugar, but calories appropriately. But this is a focus on the food service industry. The second big indicator is the Scottish obesity policy just went out for consultation last month. It promises a distinctive strategy for the out-of-home sector by the middle of next year, a commitment to write that. We don't know what it's going to contain, but clearly in Scotland, the out-of-home sector is a focus for particular nutritional attention. Of course, during all of this, the out-of-home sector has not been idle. We've had mentioned today contributions from individual companies who are doing progressive things on many parts of their work program. I've had personal experience with Compass, with Brakes, with Sodexo, with McDonald's on progressive policies, quite radical progressive policies. The big companies are not sitting back and doing nothing. The accusations for them are unfair. And we've seen just in recent, in footprint itself, 
a set of reports setting out programs. Amy was talking about the next one, but we've had three already on chef training, on nudge strategies within restaurants, and importantly, on reformulation, how to go about it. And we've got another one coming. Good. Not idle. Accusations are not fair. But it's clear from what's happening that the out-of-home sector is now a target, just like the manufacturing and retail sectors, and you must be prepared for more attention. And it's going to come in two ways that haven't been particularly the focus here for, but haven't been particularly mentioned today, right? One is attention to the price of your goods, and secondly, to specifically to the sugar in them. Let's take price, particularly the form of promotional offers or discounts. In the Scottish obesity policy, that is the number one target. We want to do something about promotional discounts on unhealthy food. It is also, if any of you attended, Action on Sugar's meeting, Victoria Target, Jack's boss, uh, got up allegedly to talk about sugar. In fact, all she talked about was promotional discounts. It's a focus of attention in England and in Scotland. In Scotland, it's a firm commitment, and we've just had, in the past week, an indicator that it will be a real action. Right? Because the Supreme Court is just after five years given the go-ahead for minimum unit pricing on alcohol. It's a model. It's one option. It needn't stop at alcohol. It can go on to other things. Minimum unit pricing <coughs> on something else. Also in that document, worth reading, she talks about the retail standard that has been applied in NHS establishments. By the retail standard, she means what products can be stocked, and what prices they can be sold at. The obvious option for the Scottish Eileen Campbell, the Scottish Health Minister, is extend the retail standard to all public sector catering operations. Control of what you stock and what price you sell it at. She could take up what is the French SRP, or in English, the threshold for resale at a loss which is a law in France which has just been renewed, acceptable in the EU, to control loss leaders. She could import, support an extension of the sugar tax. I don't know what she's going to do, but price action on discounts is her number one target, and she's got a lot of options available to her, and I suspect she's going to do something, and you're going to feel it. The mention of sugar tax leads on to sugar particularly. In the footprint guide on, on reformulation, quite properly focused on the whole food, not on single nutrients, and that's come up again in this talk. Yes, I agree. But we know, everyone knows, just as citizens, not as people in the food industry, that sugar has suddenly become the principal nutrient of concern, not just in the UK, but all over the world. And it, an obsessive focus in some ways, a uh, uh, destructive focus in many ways. It's too selective, disproportionate attention, 
But the result is pressure on companies like yours and manufacturers and retailers on the food industry altogether. And as someone said, there is a case to be made about sugar. We eat, certainly eat too much of it, right? And we suffer many expensive diseases as a result. Um, and um, of which diabetes is just one. And so the, the, the out-of-home sector can expect some action on sugar sooner or later, specifically for you. In this, and I'll conclude by maybe slightly more than 90 seconds, um, the government is actually not being very helpful to you or to anyone on sugar not being helpful to public health advocates or to industry. What we have is two programs, the sugary drinks tax and the childhood obesity plan reformulation. But last month, on the 1st of October, we finally completed the reform of the EU sugar regime, which was enthusiastically supported by DEFRA. What that meant was the removal of production quotas and minimum support prices on both sugar beet and on isoglucose. Isoglucose, as euros speak for high fructose corn syrup. The effects on this are going to be in the very first year, by spring of next year, a rapid increase in the production of sugar. 22% in the latest predictions all over Europe, but highest of all in the UK. 44% by next year. And that's without taking into account the fact that the UK is going to be the basis for the one new sugar refinery being built in Europe, Alkalegis plant intended for Yorkshire, which, if critics are to believe, is going to be the biggest in the world and will be as big as what British sugar is going to do. If that goes through and the planning application goes in this month, what it's going to do mean is that UK sugar production will have trebled within five years. And this will mean a lower price for sugar. <coughs> All the predictions before the sugar regime came off was that European prices for sugar and world prices would converge, but that European would sugar would have a premium. And the premium was estimated in deferred 15%. Already in 2016, before they even came off, European prices were below world prices, however you measure in New York and London. Right? This is the single most unhealthy sugar policy you could ever possibly design. Right? Ah, but it's worse than that. What it does is show the contradictions within the government. Here we have DEFRA trying to raise the production of sugar, while well, Public Health England is trying to lower its consumption. We have DEFRA lowering the price of sugar, while the Treasury is trying to raise the price of sugar. This undermines not only public health, it undermines or contradicts industry's attempts at reformulation. We're making more and cheaper sugar available just at a time when we need to be eating less. If you think of this from the perspective not of the boardroom who's saying I agree, 
but the food technology so has to do the reformulation. The target, the brief for the reformulation isn't just reduce the sugar. Maintain the taste at least as good as everyone else wants. Keep the shelf life up, ease of manufacturing, and it mustn't cost more, or hopefully make it cost less. In that context, cheaper, cheap sugar, below world prices, below anything they've ever seen before, is going to undermine efforts at reformulation. I do have solutions for this. Public critics should say what they would do instead, but I've run out of time, so we'll save that for discussion. Well, thank you very much. We're going to see onto our panel uh, now. So we, can, we, can I welcome up to the, um, the table uh, Dr. Professor Asoga Roberta Ray. Um, now, <clears throat> she's the Director General of the World Sugar Research Organisation. And she's got a background in pharmacology, biochemistry, and her research interest is in substantiating health claims. Um, She's also uh, been, worked in the past with the Leatherhead Food Research um, to manage their Nutrition Research Unit, which perform, uh, performs intervention studies. And then she's also got an MBA. Um, and <laughs> she joined, and she, so she's been at the, the um, World Sugar Research Organization for about two years or two and a half years now. So she's going to have some great insights into sugar. Um, Nick Hughes, if you can come up as well. Um, as many of you know Nick from his work uh, with, with the WWF and the Live World Plate. Well, he doesn't know about sustainable meals, we probably don't need to know. Um, he's also the associate editor for Footprints um, Reader Group, and he also does uh, freelance journalism for the Times, the Grocer, the Marketing, uh, Marketing, is that Marketing Company? Uh, there's okay. two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and The Ecologist, okay. And, um, yes, that's everyone. Right, so what we're going to talk about now is um, policy versus reality. Now, um, so maybe if you start by some of your solutions, and then we can talk about them uh, in, you know, how workable they are. Is this why you put her next to me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, those who make public criticism of others should say what they would do instead. This is what I would do if Theresa May should appoint me to be Minister of Agriculture in the eminent cabinet reshuffle. <laughs> uh, the problem is... We have more and cheaper sugar. The solution is should we should have less and dearer sugar. Right? How do you do that? You put the production quotas back on, but at much lower levels than you had before, which is to say you reduce the production of sugar. You also restore minimum prices, but at a very much higher level than you did before. So you make sugar more expensive. If you set those numbers correctly, farmers and processors will make more money by producing less sugar than they do now. The people who would hurt from this are the companies of this audience. That's the same. People who make products, reformulate things, we're going to find sugar is an expensive, more expensive ingredient. But as we've heard and as we know from the manufacturing sector, the retail sector, and also here, the bigger players in all of those sectors recognize nutrition is now on the agenda, reformulation is on the agenda, 
and this sends them economic signals as well as finger-wagging that this is a serious business and they've got to get on with it. Great. Okay, so in terms of um, your view, uh, Roberta, <coughs> from the, uh, the world, get it right, world Sugar Research Organisation, you know, does this sound like a workable um, policy? Do you think it's something that could, could help solve the problem? Um, the first thing I have to say is just this is totally outside the remit of what we do. <laughs> so I am the least qualified person to answer that question because, in fact, uh, it's uh, within the antitrust regulation of my member and committees not to have any conversation related to quotas, prices, or anything as such. <laughs> so I actually have uh, no educated comment I can make on this point. However, one thing that I can say is that... Uh, I don't know about the prices, but sugar does not get produced only to go into the food chain. So I think the economical aspects of this conversation is much broader than just the nutrition aspect. I know as a fact that in some country, nearly 50% of the production goes in other than food usages. Um, sorry, um, human food consumption usages. Um, but as I said, I'm afraid this is a comment that somebody from the International Sugar Association or the industry would be much better place to answer because I'm just a scientist. <laughs> so in terms of um, your perspective, Nick, you know, what do you think you've seen in terms of workable policy that's really helping to tackle issues like health and sugar? Um, can I go the other way and okay. say what's not happening? Okay. Is that okay? Um, I think, um, I mean, it, it, it extends from the point that Jack was making about DEFRA, DH, pulling in opposite directions, but I think that goes for government much more widely, actually. So we were talking earlier about the high street problem. Um, and one of the major issues with high street fast food chains is that the cheaper, poorer quality ones tend to congregate in the areas where low-income consumers live. And the current planning policy enables them to do that. Yeah. Um, so when we're creating an obesity strategy, I don't understand how planning can be excluded from that. I don't understand how housing can be excluded for that. Because people living in lower quality accommodation often don't have the appropriate cooking utensils to create meals from scratch, uh, to, to cook with fresh fruit and vegetables. Transportation as well. I mean, there's, there's a... There's lots of academic research around the concepts of food deserts where people actually, within a mile of their home, they can't access healthy food and drink because they don't have a car. They can't afford to get the bus. They can't physically carry it back. So actually, when we talk about health policy, it's not even just DEFRA and DH. It goes way beyond that, um, which is why, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's really something that the Cabinet Office needs to look at. So could um, can, can, I, can I just support sure. Nick on this one? Um, at least 10 years ago, there were two local authorities, Barking and Dagenham and Waltham Forest, who tried to deal with the planning issue. <coughs> the, the, the congregation of what you call the high street problem, cheap retailers serving unhealthy food, uh, congregated in poor areas. And I knew both of them. They were two intelligent local authority groups committed, they had an intelligent strategy, they even got dietitians to go out and offer caterers assistance, 
And what happened, both of the strategies collapsed because they ran up against planning law and change of use law. And also, local authorities demands not to have empty high streets when people were moving out of town. Planning law is absolutely crucial, and I certainly agree, but we've been there and failed there too. It, it's, it's not an easy problem to solve. But if we're taking, talking about this from a food service perspective, like what can we do, what can the food service industry do to help tackle this? So obviously, we're talking a lot about potential independent retailers who are working in these, these areas, these high poverty areas. So what can we do to kind of draw them into the debate and get them signed up? What can we do to get the people who are the chains working there, the quick service restaurants, what should we be doing to get, to drive policy in that area? Is there any suggestions? Well, I think, it, it, I mean, it is difficult. It's, it's harder for food service because it's such a fragmented sector. Mm. It's not like retail where if you get the, you know, the top 10 retailers signed up to something, you've covered 90% of the market. It's just not like that with food service. But um, I think, um, you know, there's definitely a, a case for disseminating best practice. Um, so the, the lady from the IGD, I think it was, who, who was talking about case studies, that's um, more positive case studies about how actually, you know, uh, healthier food can be profitable um, is important. But, but, but I do feel as though um, in terms of collaboration, it, it's difficult. And actually a forum like this uh, can be part of the solution and, and actually you know, playing, almost playing the role that a strong trade body would, would play. Mm -hmm. For example, the BRC would play or the Food and Drink Federation would play to try and bring those other segments of the, of the uh, industry that are, that are lagging behind together. But, it, but it's hard because there's a lot of independent businesses and um, maybe we need to reach out to some of the trade bodies that actually represent those sectors, the, the, you know, the small business mm -hmm. trade bodies and, 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 and guys beyond our normal sphere of influence. Um, you know, to try and reach those, those and, smaller And chains. should um, food services businesses, the people who have got the, the, the time and the resources to lobby government, should they be lobby, lobbying government about these issues and trying to kind of drive the agenda forward so that their efforts are recognised? Because like you said, um, there's a lot of good stuff going in on. In preparation for this talk, I went back and looked through my files about relevant <laughs> subjects that... Relevant subjects that I've... Uh, thought I might have had some uh, uh, notes and documents that would be useful. It was a shock because what I found in file after file was reports after report going over the same subjects from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I remember picking out one last night done in 1983 on the catering industry. Yeah. Um, one of the issues that came up, Amy and yours, was do we have sectoral action or do we wait for government? Do not wait for government. Do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, sorry, can I? Um, I mean, this is interesting. The conversation today, I think, is, is very interesting as well. And I echo what was said earlier because we have a group of different people coming from different angles trying to look at this. But one part that 
is often a little bit dismissed in the conversation as the father. As consumer, we do have a responsibility as well to make our choices. And I think you said rightly, yes, there is a need of education, but we have to buy into that education. We have to believe into that education, and we have to make that choice. So there is a, a limit over which regulation, enforcement, reformulation, everything can achieve through industry to government and so forth until as consumer, we buy into it and we actually make our own pledge to be part of that. So I think that's a different, difficult part because uh, changing people's behavior, as we know, is, uh, is the hardest. And, it is the hardest and that's why if you look over time, the shift has been away from behavioral change strategies towards structural mm. environmental change, the obesogenic environment, changing yeah. the environment, changing the food, changing the environment, rather than focusing on changing people's behavior. And I think that's a lesson for you, just as it is for everyone else. So if you had sort of a blank slate, and there wasn't the politics involved in terms of getting something through, and you could just say, this is the strategy that would work, we'd have some element of planning, what else, what else would it have? What would it <coughs> um, I mean, one thing that, that always sort of baffles me is that, and this comes back to linking production with consumption, is that when we, um, you know, we've got an agriculture bill that's surely going to be going through Parliament, and, and one would assume, as these things always are, that will focus on what we produce, how we produce it, can we produce more of it? Can we sell and export more of it uh, with a bit of the kind of farm level environmental element added in? But why not start with what should we be eating? What does a healthy, sustainable diet look like? And by the way, we know what you a healthy, sustainable <laughs> diet looks like. And then work backwards yeah. to how do we create a food system that supports that and, to, and ensures that those types of foods are more accessible and cheaper than the alternatives, rather than starting at the other end of the chain and saying, what, what, what are we left with at the end? So and working with that. So that would be my mm. policy for government, start yeah. with the diet and work backwards, not the other way. Uh, let me take advantage of our private conversations, Nick. Do you think DEFRA is up for that kind of change of approach? Uh, no, but I don't think DEFRA is the right <laughs> department to be driving it. It needs to be driven by Number 10 or the Cabinet Office. Right, so I'll to be doing no. that. When you look at what our land mass is, and I'm sorry, I've had to call that in And, you know, and I hear all the positives, and I've got an 86-year-old father who remembers when organic wasn't organic, it was just what you did. And he would say, that's all well and good, but we've got 750 acres of heavy Norfolk on what we can grow on it. And we've got a lot of land that you can't grow things on. And at the moment, we've just gone through all the accounts, the margins on inputs versus what the farmer is being paid, without the subsidy, we're lucky, we have non-farming income, which we can fall back on, but the, the margins are so minimal. So yes, We've grown more, we've got more sugar beet going in this because we need the break crops. Because we don't want black grass like we've got where we've got, you know, those ridiculous growing systems we've had in Bedfordshire and Cambridgeshire. 
So I have always been very keen that we looked at the alternatives, but actually I'm really frustrated because we are very limited on what we actually can grow. So food service has got to work out what it wants, and unlike the fruit and veg scheme that we put in schools, give farming industry enough notice about what it is they expect them to be producing. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm not knocky with you personally. No, I'm just really frustrated. I agree, and I don't see a contradiction in our point of view. Yeah. Really, it's about yeah, producing, <laughs> you know, it's producing in a responsible manner appropriate to the local environment. It's taking, a, you know, that landscape approach. But I don't see a contradiction between that and your starting point being what, you know, what does a sustainable diet look like? Because it's still going to involve, you know, responsibly produced meat, pulses, plants, sugar beets. There's always going to be elements of that. It's just, you know, where's the appropriate place to produce that at a financially sustainable level? But again, it just, it just requires a, a, you know, a food policy, not just an agriculture policy. So it's, but also, you're not necessarily saying it's just British. It would encompass an import policy too. Yeah. So it's Do we have any other um, policy-related or other related questions for our panel? Give me a wave and I can run to you with the um, microphone. <coughs> okay, well, I'm just going to get one more uh, question for you guys. Um, so... We've talked about DEFRA, you know, and the contradictions that we had. I mean, you know, you were very, very um, eloquent there, Jack, talking about how what one hand is doing is totally uh, undermining what the other hand is doing. Is there a way that, from the outside, that we can help government to be less contradictory and to help lobby them to change? Like, what's what power do we have to change this rather than just commenting on it? Looking at politics, I mean, this is strictly, this is beyond the question. Democratic societies tend to work when the pressure is on, when the emergency is hit. They don't take <coughs> preventive action a lot. And that's true about climate change. And it's true about diabetes, too. That's why I'm trying to be pessimist to be trying to be pragmatic. I don't think we're going to take a lot of action on climate change until we have a good flood in Washington or Shanghai. And I don't think we're going to take a lot of action on obesity that will really hit until there's some crisis in diabetes. Um, which is one of the reasons why I say to your industry, don't sit around and wait for government to act. If you, you have enough principle, you have enough, you have enough capital to actually take some actions that you think are right and also in your commercial interest and do it and don't sit around and wait for governments to get their act together because they won't. And also, presumably, if we have a healthier customer, they're going to come and eat with us more often. So that's useful from that perspective too. Can I just add something? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the single most important things that food service companies can do actually is to signal to government that they're not afraid of policies that incentivize sustainable food. I think there's, I mean, I spent a year with Indefra, and I think they're terrified of creating any policies that may be perceived to be frightening 
big food companies. But, you know, we hear it today that food companies are already doing this stuff in terms of plant-based meals and, you know, reformulation. So I think actually signalling to the politicians that this isn't something to be afraid of. And actually, one, I think one of the ways that that can practically be, be achieved is through public procurement mm. and strengthening the sustainability criteria within public procurement and by food service companies signalling to government that they'd welcome that rather than this kind of slightly fudged approach we've got at the moment where you know everything has to be balanced and actually you can pretty much play the system so that you can you know use any contractor and source anything you want at the end of the day can um, i support that one 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 of the well, i didn't need to look in my files to realize how this one has gone round and round in circles is the unified government procure food procurement strategy right uh, I went on my first away weekend with the Department of Health in 1983 to design such a policy. And it's been going on and on and on. And one of the interesting aspects about it, I was approached by someone from Compass during this time and said, will you please bring it off so we can join up and we can add our buying power to it. And what we do is we get healthier products at a cheaper price because we're buying it in bulk along with the government. And the manufacturer gets a ready market instantly without all that new product development and marketing risk. Mm. It's an absolute win-win situation. We've been going around it for at least 30 years. And this is the government, as you've said, is the biggest caterer in the country. So why is it? What's blocking it? An unwillingness at the moment, you, what you have is a lot of people down the road who want to make contracts, want freedom to do something in their local area, and there very well may be a good bit of corruption that hasn't come out. But what you have is unified government policy being undermined by lower levels of administration who want either discretion or money kickbacks or uh, I don't know what. But <coughs> that, I, I would support Nick in this one. If, if you wanted something that you could do which would be good for health but would also save you a hell of a lot of money, <coughs> push that one through. A, 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 a unified government food purchasing strategy. Okay, that sounds great. Roberta, have you got anything to add? Uh, I think one key message that we should all take is that this is about having a dialogue, either than having polarized conversations mm -hmm. and trying to discuss and work together and looking at it from different angles. If the objective is the common objective of obesity, that this is what is at the top of this conversation, then we have to take the input from every angle that goes from the economy, the diet, the science. Because I think there is a lot of statement that I hear in a lot of room about, well, clearly the science says that. Now, one thing that I do is that I spend every day reading the science. And a lot of statements that I hear, they're not actually as substantiated as they are portrayed. <laughs> so let's have a dialogue with all the parts that have the knowledge and discuss it and try and find a solution. This woman deserves your compassion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a, it's a very, very good point because it should all be based on evidence. Um, brilliant. Now, does anyone have any questions? Catherine. Hello. It's just a comment. I think as businesses, one thing that has changed and one thing that we do have within, within our gift is 
the culture of the businesses that we operate in. Um, and culture has become a much more important factor in the last 10 years. Um, and um, we recently did some research in sustainability across our employees and across our customers. And the thing that really shone out for me um, was that something like the highest motivator for sustainability and the, the most important factor for our employees was um, sustainability is really important for the future of them and their families. Um, and I think when you are working as businesses, it's not always commercial considerations. There are also cultural considerations. Um, and I think engaging your own teams behind health and sustainability um, is a going to be motivating for them uh, and be a good start point because it's not just training chefs that's important it's training your buying teams and your marketing teams and everybody involved in the in the supply chain process so um, that's an opportunity something that we can do is to make people more health-minded in our businesses and then more likely to engage and work together um, towards sustainability and healthier eating games in fact that was one of the drivers for us signing up to the peace please pledge <laughs> isn't just because we think customers are interested in that it's because we want to make sure that every one of our <coughs> sites has at least two vegetables on offer um, for the benefit of our employees too so can that's I, a good I point say so some, something um, pleasant and positive about that <laughs> I, th I think you've been much too hard on yourselves about this the training and, and the chef one right I've heard this argument again and again about medical schools Doctors don't know anything about nutrition. It's never on the medical curriculum. Everyone wants a bit of the medical curriculum. Nutrition gets shut out. You hear it about agricultural colleges. Right? Everyone, farmers never learn about nutrition. Right? At least we've had examples of uh, companies doing training. You're a hell of a lot better off than doctors are. Brilliant. Well, let's give our wonderful panel uh, a round of... Actually, hang on. Um, John had a point. Sorry. <laughs> Nearly forgot. Um, this is the last point, and then we'll have uh, reverse this presentation. Hiding in the back. Uh, yeah, John Twitchin. Um, yeah, so a couple of points. It's been raised a couple of times today, but only touched on. Um, is really to do with, with audience and, and the communications aspects, I suppose. Um, we've been looking at, at sport as a platform, and I think there's a lot of potential here, um, and particularly around sponsors and sponsorship and an activation platform for fans and engaging fans. Um, and just very briefly for an example, you know, um, your average football fan is um, probably quite a, an interesting target. There's a very large number of them and they're probably not thinking quite so much, just stereotyping for a minute, about what's in the pie they just bought. Um, but is there is... Forest Rovers, the green football club? That's you took the words out of my mouth. They've got a vegan pitch, I think, um, but they've certainly got very friendly grass. Uh, and a nice menu, um, which is um, there's no meat served, yeah. and it's it's not you know it's not on a principle. It's it's based around sustainability, yeah. um, and it's a case in point. Their pies don't make it onto the pie rate league, and they I think they should. And you can Google pie rate and have a bit of a giggle. But someone goes around all the football grounds tasting the pies, and um, I think <laughs> Forest Green Rovers should pie should be on the pie rate league uh, table. Just as an example, there um, I'm not a big fan of football, let alone. <laughs> let alone Forest Green Rovers, but I think there's a very large activation platform around sport. Um, there was a large event this year in London. Um, there were some very near missed opportunities around sustainability, um, using sponsorship as a, a platform for uh, communication, whether it's a, you know, a hydrogen fuel cell car or where the food came from. 
and both those opportunities were there and I think we need to make more of them. So we need some good footballers eating veggie burgers basically. <laughs> yeah and what you know and, and leadership there it's about iconic leadership isn't it so that's my point I think. Very good point. Okay, well, while these are, we're clapping our lovely panel, everyone take a shift, you know, jiggle yourself, run around, yeah. go forward, please. Um, so um, we are, have now got uh, Roberta. Um, she's going to give us a presentation on an overview of global policies on dietary sugar consumption. So I'll, I'll leave her to in your capable hands. Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you very much. So, so I've been asked to, to give you a little overview of what is um, the policy on dietary sugar consumption. And I liked the dietary part because uh, this is actually, as the discussion that we're having, this is the amount of uh, sugar that we actually consume within our diet, either in the market consumption of sugar, there is slightly a different definition and therefore slightly different numbers. So why am I here? Why have they asked me to do this? So um, I work for this organization, is the World Sugar Research Organization. We are a member-based organization, and the main role and objective of our company is to gather information and understand what the science is on sugar and health, um, and also what is the policy to understand uh, where is the landscape and the knowledge, but also to see where possible how we can fill gap where knowledge is not available. So the way we do that, we have a science program, and our science program has a knowledge component and a research component. So the knowledge component is one of the reasons here. We look at what is published, what is the knowledge in various topics of nutrition, diet, and health. But we also look at policy and try and understand what is the policy landscape, what is um, the regulation coming out. And through these analysis, we look at where gaps are and um, see what research we can find. And actually, it's really interesting, and this is why I was making the comment early, one of the things that we don't really know exactly is how much added sugar is consumed, because the majority of our dietary survey across the globe don't actually record added sugar. Um, so, um, and also how much research is actually done on sugar consumption and health outcome. And as I was saying, there are a lot of statements that are based on science, but actually they are not fully qualified or supported by science. And as Amy was introducing me, in my previous career, I spent a lot of time looking at the science that would support a health claim. All these claims as consumer you hear about why certain fats are good for you, why certain you know, superfood are superfood. But actually, it's a very debated argument right now of what are this cut-off point of something for not being good for you. We just have very generic statement about, we know sugar is not good for you, we know saturated fat is not good for you, but where are these cut-off points that can be scientifically qualified? And actually, there is a very new research in the US that is looking how better we can evaluate that, because it's not exactly the same to give you a recommended minimum intake and a maximum that you should be consuming of a certain topic. And I could go on forever about this, but when we talk about healthy diet, uh, Europe in particular is still trying to establish a, a nutritional profile or what we define as healthy or not healthy. So there is a lot of conversation that is going on that is past the scientific substantiation basis. But I've been asked to talk about policy, so I'll try to give you a very quick overview 
um, on what's going on on policy. So as part of what we do at WSRO, we actually review what the public health communications are and guidelines and so forth. So I'll very quickly run you through it uh, just to give you an overview of where we are. And so we'll take you through this landscape and look at what the dietary guidelines are, what is the communication to consumer, and of course the first thing that comes to mind and is often discussed is uh, labelling and front of pack labelling. What is the role of sugar sweetened and beverages and why taxation of food product? Again, each one of these topics could take an hour each, so forgive me if it will sound very superficial and just touching on it. And again, the role of the industry. We often talk about what can the food, how can this fixed environment be changed by catering or by food production through reformulation, and in the specific is sugar. I like to talk about fact, and I'm a scientist, I like to talk about number. These are the obesity data from WHO, that they were published in 2014 on the level of obesity, and we're still talking about 1.9 million adults overweight and over 600 million who are obese. We actually had, uh, I believe it was in September of October, a publication from Imperial College London that looked at the rate of obese children. And in the last 40 years, we, there's been a tenfold increase in childhood obesity. So these are real numbers. And actually one of the key things that we looked at is the role the nutrition plays in the, in the topic of obesity. And of course, sugar is at the front line of every conversation and is at the front line of the media and makes very good headline. But actually, the scientific consensus for those who read just the scientific publication is that we know there is a link between um, consumption of calorie and weight gain and therefore overweight. But where the cause-effect relationship specifically to sugars and obesity is where the conversation is not as direct. And this is also where sugar-sweetened beverages have been put at the focus because it's where the statistical correlation has been found between consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and larger body weight, weight gain, and so on, and the correlation with several disease. So this is where the focus started. And in the last few years, we've seen a series of dietary intake recommendations. And I've just highlighted the key one that started the conversation about reducing sugar consumption as a percentage in the number of calories that we overall consume. So WHO in 2015 published their first recommendation um, recommending consumption of sugar to be reduced to 10% or less. Again, in 2015, Sacken published their report. This is the Scientific Commission for Nutrition here in the UK. They reviewed the available evidence. They didn't make direct link between sugars and disease, but their recommendations was, again, to reduce free sugar consumption. And again, I'm, I'm assuming most of you here have at least a sound understanding of the issue of free or added sugar versus what is the sugar found naturally occurring in foods, product, or milk, dairy product. 
But that obviously has an impact at national level throughout the dietary guideline. And again, in 2016, the US, for the first time, has put a recommendation as a number in a dietary guideline, again, to be to 10%. And it's again the FDA, there is the governing body in the US that introduced the added sugar to the nutrition panel at the back of the food panel. So in most countries, we have a com communication on, back on nutrition communication on carbohydrates, of which sugars, now the US has introduced to have added sugar through the labeling. But possibly the one that is the most interesting is the European Food Safety Authority mandate that in March this year, they have accepted to look at again and what is the upper limit that we should be established for consumption of sugar. So this is actually the first scientific evaluation of establishing what is the cutoff point of maximum sugar that should be recommended every day for consumption. That is, I was saying, it's the opposite. This is not what is the minimum you should have or something. This is what is the maximum you shouldn't be consuming. EFSA just taken the mandate and we're waiting for the end of the year to look at what <coughs> protocol they will be using to make this evaluation. Um, and after that, I, so we are in 20, uh, 2018. By the end of 2018, they will be publishing the first report of their analysis. And from that, we'll see what the outcomes will be. But as I was saying to you, obviously WHO has established this guideline, um, but we also look to what, what's happening at national level. Every country has a dietary guideline for all nutritional recommendation. Um, in 2012, uh, ELC Europe published a review of um, all these dietary guidelines. And we've gone and look at what has changed from their publication of 2012 to 2016. And we actually seen an increase of 30% on dietary recommendation that suggests a reduction of sugar overall as part of a diet or recommendation that is quantified to a 10%. So this is clearly um, spreading across the world as a recommendation. And the other point, of course, how do you communicate this recommendation? Because uh, as we heard earlier, a lot of big reports get published, but the average consumer don't read those. So the first point of knowledge for a consumer is on PAC. This information is what got on the front of PAC. Now, Codex is, uh, we can consider it the working group of the combination of WHO and FAO. And um, there is composed of, of tasking force that look at specific nutritional issue uh, related to the food chain. And uh, there is one of the panel, there is one of the e-working group that is looking at front of pack labeling. And the first thing that they're looking is taking stock of what there is across the world and actually looking if uh, there is the requirement of a recommendation for an harmonized communication to consumer. Um, their recommendation at the moment is that it's still the evaluation is underway, but the idea, and it certainly is one of the wishes from WHO and FAO to have a more harmonized approach um, towards labeling and communication. I will not even start to tell you why it doesn't work in Europe, let alone it's so impossible to do it in other countries. But one of the typical examples is that here in the UK, we have the traffic light as a front of pack. In some country, amber is not even a color on the traffic light. So try and explain that on a nutrition package. So, but we're still trying to achieve global harmonization of our information. So a part of this, uh, but the report that is coming from Codex is quite useful because the list is gathering together 
all the information that are out there and what attend different countries are trying to do. And we, when it comes from sugar, it's all different. Some countries actually put in warning labeling on product to say this product contains sugar. There is kind of extreme, especially when you think that uh, there are certain organizations that are asking for food for particular nutritional purpose in malnutrition to carry a warning sign that the product is high in sugar. And that is where the whole sugar agenda became a concern. Because if you are malnourished or you have an uh, urgent energy need, sugar is what you need in your diet. So, but this is the conversation that at least is happening. And then the, the, the other point of conversation is tax. Um, we heard, um, certainly it's been in the UK, so where, where is this coming from? Tax in food product is no new. A fat tax was out many, many years ago and some country um, put them into their product and actually they have then removed it for a variety of reasons. But um, the beginning of the taxation again, um, looking back into WHO, a part of the global action plan to reduce non-communicable diseases, um, WHO has produced a very large report on um, actions the government can take to um, help support the implementation of the target to achieve better health. So out of the 81 recommendations, taxation of sugar-sweetened beverage is one of those. Now, what has been highly debated within the um, member states representative at global level is the, the science underpinning the decision of taxation. Because actually, um, this decision was made based on two publications. Um, and I, um, and I, I put the reference there, one from 1994 and one from 2001. And the, account, the outcome of the data from these two studies uh, underpin a value for which we can't find a calculation, by the way, um, and we have requested if we can obtain it, but that we could achieve a 0.74 kilogram weight reduction by reducing one serving of sugar-sweetened beverage per day. Now, that is a very difficult number to interpret in the sense that it's a huge generalization. But the reason why I'm putting it there, because this is the science that underpin the recommendation for taxation of sugar-sweetened beverages. On top of this, the argument within the um, um, WHO um, Health Assembly was on the fact that for um, WHO to provide a, a recommendation for government to impose a tax, they have to do what is called a choice recommendation. So the measure of the health outcome has to be in balance with the economic impact of that decision. And that analysis was not carried out. Um, so the member state requested uh, further um, information and there was a briefing. Um, but at the end, the appendix three of um, the action plan was endorsed and include the sugar-sweetened beverage taxation. So what that means is that now country has the backing up of um, public health and WHO to introduce tax. And different countries done in different way. This is a map that keep on changing whenever, so this is the latest we updated, it was um, in October. Um, but what country will have introduced it? In the United States, for example, you see a state-by-state -state decision to take this, um, and in some country it's, it's coming. One very interesting thing about the um, sugar levy 
um, because he's a levy here in the UK, is that this is the tax that has been imposed on sugar-sweetened beverages and the money coming from this tax is actually been invested in physical activities for children. And this is a point that often get dismissed. Um, that I think is actually very important. And some of the argument that has happened with the tax in Mexico, that is where it was one of the first country to bring this out, is that not only the money are not reinvested into any of the issue of obesity, but actually it's affecting a population and community that have no access to drinkable water. So actually they are just right now paying more for soft drinks. So there is a lot in the conversation that should be taken. And often we just take the bits and pieces of the discussion Yes, taxation has been very successful. Well, you're taking a product that is highly consumed, you're adding a margin to it, you are obtaining that. And in addition, um, and this is the public health view, um, public health England view, um, so what the levy is doing in the UK is uh, putting a price bracket within the amount of sugar that is contained in the sugary drinks. So of course what it's doing is pushing reformulation and taking sugar out of the product. And this is how the effectiveness of taxation is measured. So we are taking away the issue of obesity and now we are measuring success by the amount of sugar that we are taking out of the market. But I think it's quite an important point to remember because, yes, we're consuming too much sugar, but yes, we're consuming too much. And are all the activities that we're taking actually helping resolving the original problem that was obesity? And this is where the agenda reformulation come in. Sugar is present in a lot of product, but its role is not just specific to sweetness. So when it comes to um, beverages, um, the reformulation is a liquid product is fairly straightforward where you can remove sugar and put non-calorie sweetness. But when you go into baked product or confectionery product, it's much more complicated. And industry made a huge effort in trying to achieve sugar reduction. Nestle has been at the front line of this and they now achieved a 10% reduction in one of the highly sold product. There is, uh, as we heard earlier, the biggest target. So KitKat has achieved a 10% sugar reduction. That is three calories. And as a scientist, I can also tell you that sometimes the messaging can be confusing because we do have a tendency of consuming more of something that we believe to be better for us. So what is going into our product? Why are we not achieving calorie? And actually the EU and many other countries are looking into this. Because as I was saying, sugar has many functioning food products. So once you take it out, it's not just the sweetener, it's the bulkiness and it's the function that it has in many products. So what else is going in and what do we know? And if we're not achieving the target of reducing overall food consumption of categories, we're still eating too much of something else. And that was not the original objective of why we're looking at reformulating. I like to bring this to people, and many of you will be familiar with it. In 2010, the UK actually produced what is known as the obesity map. It was a very comprehensive review of all the components that are contributing to obesity. And in a very simplistic way, you can see how food, people, environment, and so forth are all a component of this. And I think it's important that we go back and remembering this, because if, again, if the objective is obesity, <coughs> for the relations that we know obesity has on non-communicable diseases, we can't just single out one component without taking all the other into consideration. So, thank you for your time. That was brilliant. Um, so have, and we've all got 
out. Any questions for Roberta? I think I'd just like to ask one quick one, which is, you mentioned some of the other countries that were doing stuff. What do you think um, is working well elsewhere that we should be adopting here? <laughs> I hate to say this sometimes, but I, I think the UK is very good at leading the agenda. Um, I think one of the conversations that is really happening now and is going back on not forgetting calories, and actually somebody mentioned in the audience as well, there is physical activity. Physical activity is not an attempt of the industry to shift the focus from reformulation, um, but it's actually as important. And actually in a lot of, of the non-communicable diseases, it's a very important component of health, independently of weight loss. So I think something that at least we're trying to do very well in the UK is to bring the conversation back into overall health and overall diet. Um, and I hope that the conversation will expand in other countries. But Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Roberta. That was a really fascinating summary. Let's all give Roberta a Now, um, please take a seat. Thank you very much. Can I um, now welcome to the, um, to the table our last panel? So we are, can I welcome, please, Julian Hunt. Now, he's Head of Public Affairs and Communications for Coca-Cola European Partners. Uh, he's been there for six years now. Um, previously, he was Communications Director at the Food and Drink Federation. Um, and before that, he was editor of The Grocer. And he's also been a, pre a trustee um, of the food redistribution, redistribution charity, Fair Share. So lots of different backgrounds there. Um, also, Christian Reynolds, who we've heard a little bit for, um, from before, from RAP. Um, he's a healthy, sustainable eating advisor. Um, so he's a technical specialist, and he works on integrating healthy, sustainable eating and food waste reduction messages. Um, and as he mentioned before, he, he's been working with Trifocal, which is a London-wide behaviour change initiative that targets food waste prevention and recycling alongside healthy eating. Um, and he also does research at the University of Sheffield, um, examining the economic and environmental impacts of food consumption. Um, can I also please welcome up uh, David Reed? He's the chairman of Prestige Purchasing. Um, he's got 40, 40 years experience of leading both operations and supply chain within the hospitality, catering and leather, leisure sectors. Um, and it, since he's been at the helm um, of Prestige, it's become recognised as a thought leader on food and drink procurement. Uh, within food service. He's also a director of a leading Cotswold hotel and the founder of a fledgling restaurant chain. People are far too highly qualified in this room, quite frankly. Um, and he's also on the board of the Academy of Food and Wine Service and an active member of the Food Ethics Council and Business Forum. You're making my job too hard. This is why I'm having to read it. I can't remember all these amazing accolades that you have. And um, David... Jones, David Jones, there we are. Can I welcome you to the floor? Um, so he's Director of Technical Services at Bid Food, and he's been in the food industry for 20 years. I uh, started in manufacturing before going into food service, so he really knows his stuff from the, from the ground up. He's got uh, an MSc in food manufacturer, uh, and he's been working with Bid Food for the last couple of years, leading a team of about 30 people responsible for all aspects of food safety. Um, and uh, an equality and legality across food procurement. Um, so we have a good uh, mix of people here, and we're going to talk about now uh, two sort of different elements. So what about some of the advances that have been made? And, um, you know, and again, we want to link this back very specifically to obesity, not just to sugar, um, but also how we can collaborate more. So we touched a bit on collaboration earlier, but we've got some great people here who you know, can tell us a bit more about vertical collaboration and... and um, 
what they've been up to. Maybe, Julian, if you kick off um, first and talk us, tell us a bit about Coke's journey um, with sugar reduction and kind of so we can see what the industry can learn from your experience there. Yes, yeah, so we, um, 2015 was when we really uh, put in place quite a strong sugar reduction strategy across our business, um, built on four pillars, very familiar things we've been talking about today. So it was innovation, new products that we brought to market. It was about changing recipes of existing uh, drinks. Uh, it was also around the role of smaller packs. So for those people who still wanted to drink, you know, say a Coke Classic, offering a smaller pack so they could reduce sugar calories in that way. Um, and lastly, and probably most significantly, when we think of the Coca-Cola brand, really redirecting a lot of our marketing efforts to nudge people to promote the no sugar variants and to encourage people to make that shift uh, and try um, a no sugar version of Coke Classic. But also, we would been doing that with a lot of our other brands as well. So the, market, the, the role of marketing, the role of smaller portions, innovation, and changing recipes. Um, Jack and a few others have talked about the soft drinks tax. I mean, we, we've been, I think the frustration for us with the, the tax remains the same. We're gonna be as interested as anybody in two years time to see has it had an impact on obesity? I suspect not. In isolation, I don't think this intervention will be the silver bullet that policymakers look for. So that's our frustration, but also because as I say, not only ourselves, but in fact the whole of the industry have really been accelerating their work around sugar reduction uh, for the last four or five years. Uh, Kantar data, which I know is really take-home data, but is a good proxy. It's what Public Health England are going to use to measure progress, shows that it's over 20% now, the, the sugar reduction since 2012-13, and it will continue to accelerate. And in our case, if we use the levy as the new definition of healthy, for soft drinks, that's a whole other conversation we can have because the industry's got four or five different measures now of what is low sugar that we will have to deal with. But if we use that as the proxy, then in our case, 95% of our products are going to be exempt from that levy anyway. Um, and we'll be left with uh, Coca-Cola Classic as the one big brand uh, that will carry the, uh, the levy. So in terms of... Um Looking at this from a, a you know, behaviour change and changing the landscape perspective, uh, Christian, maybe you could tell us like some of your research in terms of what, you know, how can we be, you know, what, what successes have there been in helping to influence people? So we've got some good example, practical examples of what some industry people have done. What can we be doing, you know, to, to back that up? You know, do you have any other good examples of, and, and that, that food service can kind of capitalise on? Right, so um, I'm here on behalf of RAP, the Waste Resources Action Programme, and uh, we are currently involved in a uh, project in London called Trifocal. And Trifocal is a world first, really, looking at coordinating or harmonising, as you said, healthy, sustainable eating rather than healthy, sustainable diet. So from a consumer-facing perspective, let's focus on just the eating rather than the complexities around diet. Healthy, sustainable eating messages with food waste messages, whether that be a reduction of food waste or a diversion from landfill or from uh, common rubbish into um, uh, higher up the waste hierarchy into, say, anaerobic digestion and those sorts of things. And so these two messages together, RAP have had a lot of research come out recently looking at and saying that the behaviours of healthy eating 
and the behaviors of waste reduction are very similar in parts. So if you're looking at dietary planning or the food weight or the food choices you have, if people are going to be looking at a healthy diet, you can also get a low food waste diet. And those things that are low food waste can actually have a positive knock-on towards um, being a healthy diet in terms of the practices of meal planning, in terms of how you shop, in terms of how you cook and prepare your food, and how you're involved with food. And so Trifocal is actually looking at this across the food chain. So looking at it from uh, at home, when you go out to eat, when you're interacting with it in school, or in an office environment, say, in a uh, catering <coughs> area. So we're talking to caterers and across there we're looking at about, uh, well we're partnering with around 2,000 small independent caterers at the moment or uh, small independent shops of that sort to see if we can use the Your Business is Food, which is our um, business facing campaign and the Love Food Hate Waste campaign, which is our, or now it's being titled as well, Small Change Big Difference, to see what small changes we can make in uh, either public or catering life to actually create a more healthy, sustainable, low food waste diet. So there are lots of different things you can do, whether it's looking at menu, whether it's getting portions right, or whether it's actually, in terms of the consumer, changing their relationship and practices around food. So that's another good example, then, of some of the resources available to the independent sector. Yeah, as well, so, on the world so I, would, I would highly recommend looking at, say, the SRA's um, guides. I would also look at your business's food and some of the food uh, footprint stuff as well, some of the reports you guys have come out with recently. Yeah. So the next Excellent one. report. I don't know who wrote them. Yeah. Right. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> so and David and David, maybe if one after the other, you could talk about some of the successes that you've seen from the supply chain side in kinds of terms of you know making things healthier and making it easier for people mm. to make those healthier choices. Of course, yes. Um, I think I, I just want to add a little oh, sure, bit yeah. of perspective, if I, if I may. Yeah, sure. um, I, I know we've touched on a number of different areas, uh, but it was interesting. <laughs> Roberto, Roberto spoke about uh, the sacking report, which was probably just less than three years ago now. And in April, we're looking at, obviously, um, the, the, the sugar tax, um, which will hit you hard. Um, but, um, uh, but she also pulled out the point that that money is being reinvested. So um, what strikes me immediately is we've had um, that scientific link, which is, you know, is now infamous really, three years and then we have a solution really, an almost closed loop. But when we talk about obesity, that three year gap is a very small snapshot really, the journey we're on. And if you make the comparisons, and, and I do this probably too frequently actually, with the salt um, the challenges we, we were faced with salt. I remember back in 2000, and you know, again, Sacking reported in 2003, 14 years ago, I'm making a direct link with salt and uh, blood pressure. And at that point, clearly things started to um, gain momentum. 14 years down the road, and then I, I hear again about um, the uh, WHO sort of endorsing our approach to salt. That's a 14 year journey that's taken us. Um, and I've been sort of in that journey, actually, and I've made the mistakes. I've reduced salt too much in, 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 in baguettes and earned, uh, ended up with knobbly bread, and, and, and that wasn't pretty. Trust me, it was a very <laughs> awkward time in my career. Um, but you're trying to do the right thing for the right reason, but you dig too, 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 you cut too deep. Um, but again, you come through that and people's palates change, and then we're sitting in this situation now where we're actually can be quite proud of salt, and it's lovely to hear so much, um, some good news about the work we've done. But this is so very early on our journey and 
retailers have, have led the way in some respects as they tend to because they have the leverage uh, um, and food service you mentioned earlier sometimes appear to be if you like sort of um, bringing up uh, bringing up the rear that's because unfortunately the retailers take the lion's share of the manufacturing time so so we have to very much obviously learn some of the lessons take some of those initiatives and then em employ them so within our business and, and the progress we've made. Um, and, and again, if we look back, it's been seven months <coughs> since we've actually had the criteria to work to. Um, and we engaged with our manufacturing partners probably 18 months ago, essentially when the first PHE piece came out. And the manufacturers were very much uh, sanguine about the situation. They were really, it was really difficult for us to get some engagement because we wanted to be ahead of the game, as you would like to. You know, you can see the signals coming. Let's start reformulating. But unfortunately, until you can get all parties um, in that into in supply chain actually uh, with you it's very difficult to make the progress so in the seven months since we've had those numbers um, all of a sudden um, we're seeing to, within the catering and even food service from a manufacturing perspective we're seeing momentum which is fantastic news it's great news um, but you plan your menu six nine months in advance so we're here today from a bid food perspective really uh, I've tried to pull all the levers and we've got some great news stories in terms of the pipeline to reduce sugar in our final products. I know, you know, we've really pushed the boundaries of some of our cake development, and we're taking up to 20% out of that, which I thought was a, is very impressive. But again, we've had a first few <coughs> first productions, and the structure isn't holding up. So again, back to the point Roberto made earlier in terms of obviously you've got the sweetness element, but this has structure, integrity, and how it impacts the rheology of the food product. That when you scale up and that from test kitchen, you struggle with some challenges. So that's delayed us somewhat, but we're still on target um, to deliver those 20% <coughs> savings in those cake products. We're also looking at up to 20% in some of our ice creams. Um, and, and we're really pleased with the, with the momentum we've gained there, but it's only with the initiative and support from our supply partners can we make that happen. Unfortunately, the same can't be said in all categories. We've had some challenges um, with some of our supply partners who, who simply haven't got the line time to do the development work to actually um, bring the products because other people take priority. Um, but equally, within bid food, we're quite fortunate. We have quite a, a, a good size <coughs> own brand portfolio, but we also buy a lot of branded port, uh, products, um, some of those well-known brands that we all, we all love and buy. And it's interesting, again, in preparation for today, to review the actual line-by-line -line data and, and to get some sort of feel of not only what we're doing, but what, if you like, the brands are doing ahead of, if you like, the PHE publications. And we can see well, that I we're seeing some... To Sorry. Make in yes, of course. I just want to raise the question. Okay, sugar reduction in cake is not working. It's still a cake. We're still eating too much cake. Yeah. And how many calories have you managed to take out of the cake? Because by taking the sugar, what do <coughs> you have to put in? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, if the targets, as public health interest pretended, is simply to take sugar out of the food chain, mm -hmm. It's taken a success as 20%. Have we taken calories out of the food? Have we achieved healthier diet? What are we putting into the food chain? Because yep. the sugar not yep. only has the structure, is the functionality of being a preservative. 
what is going into our food chain that we're still over consuming. Okay. That's my question. Yeah. So of course the PHE became, were quite clear in that you shouldn't actually increase the calories in the final products. So that's a safeguard that's already in place. The 20% in a cake is an example. We haven't seen that success across the board, to be honest with you. But what it does demonstrate is there is the headspace there, as with the salt targets. We have become quite lax in terms of um, when we are producing these products. There is an opportunity to reduce um, up to 20% in some products. Very much depends on the recipe. That isn't 20% across the board, but it demonstrates to me that there is the headspace available, and, and the PHE have been very bold in, in, in trying to target 20% by 2020, but they must have had the insight because actually, in some respects, it's actually possible. But within my business, I have 200 products I need to reformulate with a portfolio of 1,000. I need to do that by 2020. I don't develop 200 products a year. So, so I can't afford to keep going back and taking the 5% bite-sized chunks, which a lot of major brands are doing, and rightly so, because then you're being much more measured in your approach. Um, but I'm trying to ensure I can demonstrate you know, where there is an opportunity, um, I target areas where, there, where I can actually reduce that sugar, and we're having success. But again, it needs to be commensurate with what's possible within my work environment, the resources I have available, the line time I get from these manufacturers. And, and that's where the real challenges um, sit within food service. Um, there is a willingness, there's a desire, and there's headspace. So we're targeting that headspace. And in 2020, then we'll see some technological innovations, as we have seen with salt, actually, five years down. Once you hit that threshold, you need to make sure your process technologist is really you know, on their game to be able to deliver that product um, the way you want it. But at the moment, it's the headspace that there is plenty of headspace for everybody to target, but that's not the barrier to, making those, um, to delivering those um, benefits. And what about you, David? Sorry. David Reed, this time. What do you think in terms of some of the successes that you guys had? Um, I, 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 what I'd like to do is draw attention, if I can, to I think there's quite a lot of success in food service in this area already. And I'd like to broaden that out, if I may, into our sector as a whole, because I think there are some lessons from that. Um, it, it, if, if you look at you know, some, some of our clients and some people who aren't our clients, pe people, there are some in the room. Jamie's Italian is a good example. Thank you. Um, but there are, uh, there are many others. Pret-a-Manger with what they've done with their uh, vegetarian uh, stores. Um, there's, there's many other examples. People, uh, clients of ours like uh, Avocado and Itsu Pure, who have um, driven market differentiation they've created for themselves a new market by d delivering something that was unhealthy in a, in a healthy format. And I think you know, the, what they've, one, one of the reasons why they've been very successful is because they've reinvented the product in a way that makes it attractive to the consumer. And they've done that by working really, really closely with their suppliers to build, to build a product set that is really um, attractive and, and profitable. And, and there's another really good example, I think, which is what McDonald's has done with its supply chain over the last five years, where they've uh, really worked hard at animal welfare, at provenance, at, uh, at healthy, um, uh, sustainable ingredients. And you know, now if you talk to consumers, the consumers now talk about how McDonald's are different from Burger King and the others in the QSR sector. So they are, they're using that as a marketing tool to drive volume and drive sales. And I think that's big success. And I think those are the, th those are the kind of organizations that we should be looking to because they're very good at working with their supply base to drive the product into a new place. 
Now, if I may, I just want to add one other thing, which is I think that there are lessons from that. Um, you know, the, the big lesson being communication and collaboration with outside one's own box. Our own industry, our own sector, is it, it is habitually rather um, uh, rather internal fo internally focused. And one of the things that we, we you know we do is we sit inside a huge agri-food sector. And I do absolutely take Nick's point about the, the, this issue is like a cabinet office issue. This is really, really important. This is the future of our children's health as a nation. And one of our other responsibilities is to, is to engage properly through all the right channels into government and lobby for change because that change has to happen. Otherwise, in my view, we're going to end up in a, in a huge crisis, but financially for the government and a terrible place for, for our children. You know, we need to be doing things like getting domestic science back on uh, the, the education agenda in schools so that children learn about food. But it we don't understand sounds like you're saying that you know, this, this like everything is lo missing. lobbying government issue should become a part of people's... Um, um, part of the CSR policy, like it should be absolutely explicit. It absolutely within should be. I think it should. Um, personally, you know, if you're setting up this committee, it should be a major task of that committee to engage with our industry bodies to get to get this changed. And we should also be working uh, hard to lobby other parts of the food sector. So manufacturers, farming, retail. We should be working hand in hand <coughs> to drive this change because it is a national catastrophe in waiting it's already happening but it's certainly going to get worse and that point that you made about sometimes it's not maybe just selling them and it, roberta you made about the cake maybe it's let's work on the cake but let's also work on selling them something that's actually even more attractive than the croissant or the or, or the cake so that mm. they, you choose that instead but the, the, these sorry you know we, we, we're obviously at cross purposes in some respects Broadly speaking, we understand that reformulation is only part of the solution. Yeah. Um, and clearly here today we're talking more so on reformulation, mm. but the physical activity and, you know, obviously the breakfast club reinvestment from the sugar tax. My son came home the other day and he said, I, I was weighed today. I said, what were you? He said, E5. I thought, I, I couldn't believe that, E5, I wasn't too sure. But clearly what they're doing now, they're monitoring the weight of children in school, reporting that back and obviously giving it an alphanumeric to make sure they mm. disguise it. But that just shows to me that they're doing, there is some fantastic work going on actually yeah. at the education sector, yeah. at the education front. My daughter came home with a food for, with a change for life programme, yeah. equally pleased that the education is there and we see that in, 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 in everyday consumption. Mm. And you talk about some of these uh, brands that are obviously delivering the healthy products, well obviously they're delivering it because there are the, the consumers there who actually demand that, which is this, this new generation. But I mentioned earlier, 30 years to get into this position, it's going to take us a generation to get out exactly. of it again yeah. but the policy that is in place now we should be definitely backing and supporting and whilst there is always more we can do the actual initiatives that the PHA have come out with have got really various different strings to their bow more than just reformulation but and I think that should be applauded quite quickly so you think of I mean even something like coffee you know nobody used to pay two pounds fifty for a coffee but you think how quickly that's happened like could we just but is, are you saying ambitious? that, that £2.50 coffee is fair trade? Are you just saying people now pay £2.50 no, I mean because of London like, inflation? You know, a few years ago, you, that would have been unthinkable, you know, yeah. that people would pay that much for a coffee. So the point is, is that, you know, or, or the way our reliance in the last 10 years on our smartphones, like things can change quite dramatically quickly. Like yeah. maybe should we just be setting ourselves a really ambitious target? Roberta. Sorry. 
I think for me, the conversation still needs to be back on portion sizes mm, yeah. and calories. Yeah. 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 Because, uh, and, and this is something where the industry can actually play an important role because one of the conversations I often have with industry is that, okay, I'm prepared to reduce my portion size, but we all have to do it at the same time because as consumer we perceive the value by quantity yeah. and we're not prepared to pay more for less. So, Julian, how, you know, how do you find that's helped with the soft drink sector? I mean, has it made it much more helpful that everybody had this same target? Well, I mean, it's accelerated work that was already happening. I mean, I mean that's the, the, the honest truth. And the bad news for David, by the way, is that the schools clubs are not going to be getting the money that Osborne promised. Mm. I mean, it will, will be that will be reinvested. It, it, no, there will not be. That money. It was a billion pounds. It will not be a billion. But it won't pounds. be a billion. No, of course not. Absolutely. Because we understand when that, you look at the, the money from the sugar tax, will be reinvested. There will not be that money because you look at the scale matter. and speed at which the industry has been building on the work that was already in progress since 2013. On the back, I have to say, of the much maligned first round of uh, the public health responsibility deal. Uh, for which none of us got any credit. But mm. that actually was the kickstart of, I think, some serious joined up yeah. thinking about the role of industry and what it could do in a more rounded way. But, you know, for, for lots of dull reasons, I think we've explored mm. these for a, a various fora in recent years. It's never got the credit it deserved. But yeah. for me, that was when lots of us in industry really started to put some momentum in our business uh, around uh, improving the nutrition profile of the products we're putting on the market uh, and helping to drive consumers to uh, choose the healthier options that were available. But I think um, I kind of agree with, with David as well, and, it, and it back to the point you were trying to make, Roberta, I think a lot of these things do actually require a joined up mm. policy. If government is serious about food, mm. it's got to stop letting individual departments in isolation develop policies yeah. and deliberately not talking to each other so that you end up with lots of people, whether mm. they're procurement officers, whether they're buying managers, whether they're product developers, whether they're marketeers, mm. thinking, I've no idea what to do here. I develop a product. It's lovely. It's natural. It's organic. It goes in. It's below the, the soft drinks levy, yep. but I still have to put a red on the label yeah. for traffic lights. Why is that? Oh, well, that's a different policy. But what, what, is, what is a healthy yeah, product then? Oh, yeah. well, you've got five different measures you, you have to choose. You're desperate to say Well, no, no, I was, I was just kind of, I'm agreeing with you, but I guess the thing which has come from all three comments is what is the end point we're going to? I don't yeah. think there is one single end point that we're all aiming for because we're not going to get everybody to, um, in a short period of time, as you say, generationally, to the Eat Well Guide. It's going to take a while, and there's going to be incremental change, and it's been incremental change of the British diet from rationing till now. The I British... No, we don't. People, <laughs> people ate unhealthy diets <laughs> under rationing. We just had. No, no. I could, I could show you some modelling, but just, just. I'm sorry, I mentioned the R word, but just the British diet has been changing over the last um, 70 years. It's continuing to change, and it will continue to change. Yeah. And the main thing, just going back to say, trifocal and what people can do in the short term, because I guess in terms of policy, and that's get portions right. Yeah at a small person level and actually we as an industry can coordinate that and help people from a food waste and from a healthy sustainability point of view and that relates to all of these things so it's portions right and reformulation 
So basically, and that's the incremental and, and change that we can help. Focusing on taste and making sure that there's really tasty, delicious alternatives. So like that's what you guys are doing, haven't you? Not alternatives. They've got to become the norm. Yeah. Well, well, I think the interesting thing, and there's better qualified people in the room, is as part of the next phase of public health England work <coughs> that, and calories, they'll be looking at how do you split your 2,000 calories over yeah. the day yeah, yeah. and what is, you know, what is an acceptable. So can you, if you have your croissant and coffee, where does that fit in a balance if you start to really... Now, that's a hard message, virtually impossible, I would argue, mm. to deliver to consumers. Mm. But back to your roadmap, you don't need nine different interventions yeah. you probably need two or three because mm. actually one of them is if that's a model the industry can buy into what does that look like mm. for the person putting breakfast or for the person doing lunch or for the dinner where does a, an Italian meal at night fit if it really should only be 600 calories and I know my friends from James say no no it's a treat hey I mean this is the, the oh. challenge we have but, but, I, but I would do you see what I mean and I know you've done a lot of that work but coming from and others do too so how does that become the norm? Because then it gets you away from the, the obsessive nutritionalism. It gets you away from trying to coordinate things. You know, that ultimately, if the objective is obesity, then really the next phase is calories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then it's how do you construct a, f probably I would argue you need to be looking at other things like fiber, five yeah. a day, yeah. what's our role? Yeah. And actually simplistically, if you put more fruit and veg into meals, disguised or, re or visible, you can bulk up, you get more for your money, you can create a better balanced plate. I mean, it's all of this complicated. It starts with objective is obesity, then it's calories, yeah. then it's within that construct, what's our role <coughs> to deliver the best possible meal solutions that people will actually want to buy. That's the challenge for the, right. the creative like chefs and developers. Going back to the collaboration point, which we haven't, we're going to run out of time to discuss, but it also mm. sounds like a lot of you're all saying collaborating with your supply chain. So there's a lot of vertical collaboration that has to happen. And forward. Uh, yeah, yes. and, and actually with government as well, because it is, it, you know, that's an important part, you know, because uh, schools, medicine, education, all these things are part of the equation for me. So we're going to make Could it part just of our CSR to lobby government, we're going to make sure we focus on calories and portion sizes and looking forward and supply chain. But, but also food choices and lifestyle, I think has to be part of this conversation because the amount of conversations I have with people about reducing sugar from cake and, and chocolate, mm. leave the, cho <coughs> you know, the sugar into the chocolate. I don't want a sugar reduced chocolate, I just have to eat less. Mm. But leave the chocolate alone or the ice cream. It's, well, it's but the just. Yeah. You, know, you see confectionery moving that way, actually. I think yeah, but do you know how many conversations with public health we had to have on that? There isn't, you know, I started this conversation with public health when we were talking about um, children's school meals. Then when they, you know, the Jane Olivia campaign, it all go retrained and restructure, pudding stayed on the meal. And mm. I was told by public health that they were a healthy pudding. And I'm still looking for the definition of healthy pudding. I have no idea mm. what these all definitions are. But the point is, we're teaching children that every day after your meal you have a pudding, and then they come home at age 14 asking for pudding. So we need to have a real rethink about what we mean about lifestyle, food choices. Either we keep on going down, we take a bit of sugar out of the cake, or we take a bit of sugar out or whatever. But also, there's the point, like you said, it's about people understanding, because essentially yeah. you want to educate them that they can, they can assess themselves. If I have a croissant and coffee for breakfast, then I should probably have a croissant yeah. for lunch. 
and all of these things. And diet is not about just a diet, it's about an eating pattern yeah. and it's about the overall energy in, energy out and lifestyle and fibre. Can we start talking about fibre? Between all the things that is going on labelling, fibre is the only thing that is not compulsory. So how am I supposed to know how much fibre as a consumer am I supposed to eat? Of course, fruit and vegetable. If your target is 30 grams a day, that I can tell you, is a huge amount, yep. you've got to start piling up the veg because you can't make it. Oh, you can do your starches as well, so your rice, potatoes, mm, etc. And your lentils. Well, your lentils yeah. are kind of that, yeah. that split yeah. category. Yeah. But, yeah. But, yeah. Sorry. but those are I all healthy, sustainable things as well. Mm. If Absolutely. And actually, that's another good point, isn't it? Because sometimes things are simpler than you think. So, you know, we talk about all these new innovations, but the humble lentil is a great way to get fibre, and it's, uh, it's very sustainable and good protein. So, listen, we are running over time, and we are not allowed to do that. I will... Yeah, you're dead. Yeah, so, <laughs> so um, now, uh, you guys have been amazing. It's been really fascinating hearing all the different insights from your um, experience in the field. And for that, we thank you very much. Can you please all give them a round of applause? Um, it's been a long afternoon. I hope that you have continued to absorb. I think it's been a really, really nice, though, because there's been lots of circular, lots of ability to kind of revisit things, really chew over the card. So... Um, you know, we, we, I think the, the thing that we're coming away from is that we can put together with this roadmap. It's, it sounds like it can have some real useful um, targets within it that we need to have this sustainable nutrition lens that we, that we view healthy food within because the, the two things are um, intrinsically linked and cannot be viewed independently. I think this idea of portion sizing is very, very crucial, but also that we've got to keep our eye on the prize, which is actually improving health and reducing obesity. So not, you know, nutritionism and focusing too much on one particular element, although some of the easy ones like sugar should be targeted. Now, I'm going to shut up and say thank you very much for coming and for putting your input. Oh, oh yeah, coffees and... and Glass of wine. Glass of wine and tea, or uh, no, not tea. Glass just just glass of wine. It's footprint after all. Just wine. Wine next door. So come have a drink, have a chat, and relax. But thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, this is only the beginning. I hope Julian loves you. Thanks so much. Um, and we will be following this up through through our various channels um, later on in the year. Um, do come and have a drink with us. A uh, big thank you to our remaining sponsors. I think they're actually gone, actually, both Bid, Bid Food and... Oh, she's there. Marvellous. Bid Food and Coca-Cola European Partners, who, without help like that, we can't put these things on. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big cause, so please champion, champion it and, and join in the party. Thank you. Drink time.